Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This podcast is in memory of Arlene Ruby Harrell upon the occasion of her first yard site. Arlene's welcoming, free-spirited nature, warmth, authenticity, candor, humor, and openness is missed deeply by all of us who are privileged to work with her, connect with her, and learn from her wisdom. This episode of the Pardes Parsha podcast features Rabbi Svi Hirschfield and Rabbi Daniel Reifman on Parshat Truma. For the latest episode of the Parsha podcast, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, Rabbi Svi Hirschfield and Daniel Reifman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast, the Triple P, even though I'm the only one that calls it that. My name is Svi Hirschfield, and I am privileged to be here discussing Parshat Truma with my friend and teacher and colleague, Rabbi Daniel Reifman. Uh, And before we begin, I would just like to acknowledge that this podcast is in memory of my friend and colleague, Arlene Harel. Her yort site is coming up, Rosh Chodesh Adar, uh, and this is just one of many things that Pardes is doing to uh, honor her memory. She was a tremendous asset to Pardes, and she loved Pardes, and she loved Pardes Torah. She especially loved the month of Adar. Purim was one of her favorite holidays. We have many pictures of Arlene celebrating in that distinctively yeah, Pardes way. I'm going to say the favorite holiday of, of Arlene. She brought all the spirit of Rosh Chodesh Adar. So... Uh, Daniel, let's begin. What uh, what do you want, what is important to you in Parshat Truma? Parshat Truma is a really fascinating parsha because it's the beginning of a series of five parshiot which discuss the building of the Mishkan, the building of the Tabernacle, which is essentially the pinnacle of the Book of Shemot, the Book of Exodus. Um, the Mishkan, the Tabernacle, uh, is obviously occupies a central place in the way that we think about the Jews' journey through the wilderness, which is what we read about for the rest of the Torah. Um, It occupies a particularly important position within the book of Shemot. I think when we read through the book of Shemot and we get to this section of Shemot, we have to ask ourselves, why are the Jews building the Mishkan at all? What function does it serve uh, for them as their experience in the wilderness? Uh, what function does it serve for us as readers of the Book of Shemot? Especially this is before we have the 40-year plan, right? We might be in a six-month plan or an eighth-month plan, so it really sharpens the question, why are we pausing now on this journey to the land of Israel to build this very ornate, impressive, portable temple? Yeah. I, uh, I want to take us back actually to the beginning of the book of Shemot before we think about the specifics of how they set about building the, the Mishkan. Uh, I want to think about the, one of the basic problems, I think, of the book of, of Shemot, which is uh, the Jewish people's relationship with God. Um, Not we, only a problem with the book of Shemot, others today might uh, say we have a similar problem. Go ahead. When Moshe uh, meets God for the first time, uh, on Har Sinai, he's uh, he's still in exile from the land of Egypt. Uh, he's a shepherd. He sees the burning bush. He goes and investigates, and God speaks to him for the first time and says, "Go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh that he has to set my people free." And Moshe turns to God and says, "When I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them?" 
basically the question that, that uh, the Book of Shemot poses is, who is God? What are we supposed to call God? How are we supposed to relate to God? Uh, and God's first answer, um, I always think of God kind of laughing up his sleeve at this point. He says, I am that I am, which of course is a non-answer. Um, in some sense, God is not really knowable in, as in, 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 as we get to know a regular person, God is unknowable in a very fundamental sense. And yet that's not really an answer at all. And God has to cycle back and say, say that I'm the God of your fathers, right? That I was known to God, your fathers by, uh, by the name, uh, uh, by the name, uh, by yud hey vav hey. Um, but the problem only continues from there. He goes back to Egypt, and Pharaoh says to him, who is this God who I should listen to? Right? Well, I don't know any God like this. Um, and the 10 plagues become a way of Pharaoh coming to know God, right? Through rather forcibly. Yeah, I was gonna say a very unpleasant way of knowing God, but yes. But, but, but all through the 10 plagues, you see that this is an emphasis. God keeps saying, and you will know that I am God, and you will know that I am God in the land, and so on and, and so forth. And not just the Egyptians, but the Israelites as well. And the Israelites as well, were. right. And, and even Pharaoh and the Egyptians are, are in some sense uh, also two separate parties who everybody has to know uh, that, that, that God is uh, that, that, that God is the ultimate authority and the ultimate power. Um, and I think through this, uh, all of humanity will come to know God. Um, we have a sense, therefore, that when the Jews leave Egypt, um, that God is kind of a fixed figure in their lives. And yet they get to the wilderness and they keep complaining. And we realize that when they're complaining, they may not understand that God is providing for them or that God is with them. Um, and in chapter 17, uh, as we get close to the revelation at Sinai, there's a really radical statement where uh, they've just complained about water and God has given them water. And then in chapter 17, verse 7, the place was named Massa and Merivah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tried the Lord saying, is the Lord presence among us, present among us or not? In other words, there's a moment of radical doubt. Is, is God really here? Well, I think, you know, uh, I, I, would, I would either sharpen or disagree a little bit. The Abarbanel says something very interesting also on Parsha Peshach. I know we're supposed to be on Parsha Truma, everyone. We're going to get there. Uh, where he, he also raises this question, because the people cry out to God at a certain point, then they scream to Moshe, why did you bring us out to the wilderness to die? And Nachmanides actually says, well, there are two groups. There's the good religious group, the good kids. I believe that Daniel was always one of the good kids, so he's already not understanding what, I was one of the bad kids. And the bad kids saying, you know, uh, complaining to Moshe that God brought us out here to die. The Abarbanel says, no, it's actually not, a conflict that the people on the one hand, they believed in God. They believed in a God that would punish the wicked, like God did with the, the ark and the flood, and God did with the generation of the Tower of Babel. So punishing the Egyptians, that they can get behind, that God did that. But who's to say that God is going to actually accompany them in the wilderness and take care of their every need? Maybe that was Moshe's fantasy. And that, God is, and that God is not necessarily going to provide for them. God right. Is a, who says that God, the, the God of everything is going to take care of them? And that kind of almost puts change the emphasis on your point of what does it mean to know God? Uh, there's like this knowledge of God in a very abstract, theoretical, or even all-powerful God of nature way. But there's also this, quote-unquote, knowing a God who is really with you. And, and, and also the God that they know in Egypt is a God who, as you said, punishes. How do you know that the God who punishes is also the God who provides and also the God who cares? 
Um, yeah, I, 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 think, I think that's all true. And so therefore, the Mishkan is there to do what? Even the word shochen, right? But, what, but what's the job? Of before the we get to the Mishkan, there's one more line that I just want to emphasize. When we read the, the, the Ten Commandments, um, the Ten Commandments, if we can call it a commandment, there's a debate about whether it counts as the first commandment or it's just an introduction. God says, I'm Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, right? And we see this just kind of like as a preamble. I want to read it as actually a little more substantive. God, um, God comes to Har Sinai and, and says, hi, we've met, but you may not remember me. I'm the God who took you out of Egypt, and I'm here again. In other words, there's, there's, there's a, a, a sense in which the, the Jewish people have to be reintroduced to God multiple times. Or reinvited. Or reinvited into this relationship with God. Which makes sense, because God's pretty scary. Uh, yeah, and it makes sense that you would need to be reassured and calmed because God appears in fire and smoke and does a lot of very scary things. And in fact, the the experience of of the revelation at Sinai is a terrifying experience and one that later on in the Torah we read the Jews say uh, we don't want to do that yeah, again. We can't handle it. Okay, so in that context, the role of the Mishkan that we're building here and collecting the role of the Mishkan is for the Jewish people to bring God into their midst to have that permanent presence of God in the camp. Um, and the what makes this different is not only is God now being brought in uh, in a way that is uh, permanent, but the Jewish people are the ones who are doing it themselves. They are the ones who are actively building this uh, this this structure that God will come and dwell uh, within, and and I think there's a very powerful element of the fact that the God the Jews are active, and the Jews are the ones taking the initiative uh, that 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 makes this a moment that is different somehow. That brings this makes this a moment where the the relationship that they've has been kind of developed in fits and starts. That this process of knowing God is somehow going to be fundamentally different now, fundamentally more permanent and, 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 and more lasting. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned this idea of, of who initiates. And I always find that like a puzzle, whose idea was Mish this Mishkan, who wants to see it happen, right? The, uh, the text itself is unclear. And in fact, even in the invitation to get started, there is a dual message there that I think actually fits in very nicely with the dynamic you're talking about. The Parsha begins, the Lord spoke to Moshe saying, tell the Israelite people to bring me gifts, right? God is saying, listen, you guys need to build this thing and, uh, and, and you go command them, you start collecting, like Moshe is the tax collector. But then it goes on, uh, uh, God then continues, only accept gifts from everyone whose heart moves him to do so. Using, the using the verb nidava, which, right, is, a, which, is, which is a donation. right? And so, you know, a commanded voluntary act. We sometimes have that at home where we did with my kids where we commanded them to volunteer for various tasks. But there's a, a paradox there that I actually like in terms of, uh, on the one hand, this sense of commandedness. This is what you must do. Uh, and on the other hand, if you're only doing it because you must do it, You've missed out on something, and, and you're, you're not getting what this is all about in a certain way. And uh, it reminds me that as modern people, we very much begin things, think that things have to begin with our emotions, that our, our physical behaviors or our gestures are only valid or only have integrity if they begin with an emotion. I like you, therefore I buy you a gift. I am moved by our relationship, and therefore I want to express it in the form right. of a gift. Right, and I think the Torah throughout 
offers a different model that says, no, behaviors can be commanded, but through those behaviors, that is meant to inspire or instill a genuine emotional connection and, and content. Paradoxically, the fact that they are commanded to give is what makes them want to give and makes it a true donation. A which, true which fits your giving idea. Of God themselves. is inviting them. God is actually, I, I like your whole, I like this idea. God, throughout this story, is inviting relationship in ways that sometimes the people cannot handle it all. But God is inviting them to know who he is, and the people are struggling to figure out how they want that relationship to work, and can they trust that that relationship really exists. Interesting. Interesting. The, the, the process of giving, then, is kind of like a chicken egg problem, meaning are they going to feel more compelled for is it going to be more genuine if they're commanded first or is it going to be is is it, which which comes first the command or the or, or the the genuine wanting to give and i think you're saying that 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 really the command comes first or as you're putting it the invitation to right. to have a relationship with god comes first and through the invitation is where they really get or them. like you said god's commanding it because he knows they want it and they need it they just can't figure their way I, forward and making it happen yeah yeah so I want to just get your thoughts briefly. There's that whole debate about whether the Mishkan and all this need for physical representation is, it, is a reaction to the golden calf. It's like a concession, oh, you guys can't manage. Or do you believe that this is actually was part of the ideal design? Yeah, I, I knew you were going to ask me yes, about that. Yes, I told him beforehand, everyone. I was not setting him up. He knew this question was coming. Um, I, I want to kind of punt on that because I think you can read it both ways. Uh, and in fact, the commentators, uh, different commentators uh, take, uh, take each position. Some commentators say that the order in which these, uh, the, 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 um, the material is presented in the Torah is in fact the order in which it happened chronologically, right. that they're commanded to build the, the Mishkan um, then they sin with the golden calf, and then they actually build the Mishkan, um, which is the sequence that it happens here. Right. Uh, there are other commentators who say, no, really the sin of the golden calf for, happens first, and only then are they commanded to build the Mishkan. The Mishkan is, in fact, a reaction to, um, the, or, or maybe a solution for a problem presented by the, the, the sin of the golden calf, which is that the Jewish people don't feel that, like they have a relationship with God, which is why they built the golden calf in the first place. You know, or that God wasn't among them, that this God out there is not really among us here, which I think a lot of us have that same problem also in this. When you ask someone if they believe in God, you could be asking this very philosophically abstract question, or you could be asking someone, do you feel like you have a relationship with God in your life right now? And I feel like those are very different questions. And I know for myself, they elicit very different answers. It's true. And, and as, I said, as I started to say before, I think you can read it both ways. I think the need to have the Mishkan can be seen as something that precedes the sin of the golden calf, even if it acquires new meaning after the sin of the golden calf. Now that suddenly they realize the need for the Mishkan with greater urgency than before. Or you can read the whole thing as coming after the sin of the golden calf, meaning before the sin of the golden calf, they didn't realize, God didn't, didn't realize, so to speak, that they needed this relationship. It's only after they sin, then the Mishkan, even the command to build the Mishkan, comes as a response. I think you could read it either way. You know, I'm wondering, I want to catch your thoughts. So much of the Mishkan, at least as it progresses, as we learn about it, uh, relates to sacrifices brought for sin, where the chatat plays a, a real role there. 
And I'm wondering that even whether it was prior or not, this idea of the people learning how to stay in relationship with God even after failure, both individually and collectively, seems to be an ongoing part of our story. Right. So when we say that the Mishkan is a is is a more durable and lasting simple an expression of their relationship with God, um, part of that is that it gives them a mechanism to uh, to uh, to achieve atonement and forgiveness after they've sinned. Um, that can be seen in the very technical uh, legal mechanism of the sacrifice, including the, the sin offering, where somebody who has sinned, either an individual or the entire nation, can bring a sacrifice to atone. Uh, when we read uh, the book of Vayikra, the next book in the Torah, and we read about all of the different rituals they do in the Mishkan, one of the central ones, of course, is uh, the, the, the Yom Kippur service, where uh, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, goes into the Holy of Holies and achieves atonement for the entire people once a year. Um, it can also be seen, I think, in the pattern that is established after the book of Exodus, after the book of Leviticus, the book of Vayikra, in the book of Bamidbar, uh, where the narrative kind of picks up again. Vayikra is almost entirely laws, so the narrative of the Jews traveling through the wilderness picks up with the book of Bamidbar and the book of Numbers. Um, we see a very different kind of relationship between the Jewish people and God. You talk about sin in the book of Bamidbar, um, the Jewish people sin uh, a lot. <laughs> they make a lot of mistakes in their travel through the wilderness. Um, yeah, spoiler alert, once you get to Bamidbar, it's a, it's a rough read. <laughs> it is a rough read. It is a rough read. Um, it, 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 it's, it, it is actually kind of a, a hard book to get through because the Jewish people are punished uh, often uh, kind of on, 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 on a, the God turns on a dime and, and they do something wrong and God punishes them often very harshly. Um, part of that is part of this new relationship with God. God is in their midst. They never again doubt the fact that God is in their midst. But when you have God in your midst in this very immediate way, uh, the, the stakes of sin are much higher and the risks of sin are much higher. Um, and therefore, the, 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 the process of living in cl such close proximity with God is in some ways the theme of the book of Bamidbar. Um, and, 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 and it's part of how the Jewish people grow and mature and learn to have this relationship with God when God is, on the one hand, uh, very caring. He provides all of their needs. On the other hand, is, is, uh, is, is also a figure who can, uh, who can punish. Right, so proximity to God is a double-edged sword, so it to absolutely speak. Absolutely that, That's never going to go away. Um, so that's an interesting question. I feel like where I feel like we're cramming into Parsha Truma all of the uh, the entire Torah, the entire Torah. Yeah, why not? Um, does it go away? Well, it goes away in the sense that this experience of living with God in their midst, in the middle of the camp, is not something that continues for all right. of Jewish history. We come history. to the land of Israel, and that's going to end. It becomes the land, of, of, and, and that ends. And in some ways, if we're going to talk about the theme of the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, 
uh, the challenge is not well, living. We don't, we don't need any more Parsha podcasts, everyone. We have now covered uh, Vayikra, Bamidbar, and the challenge of, If the challenge of the book of Bamidbar is the challenge of living too close to God in too close proximity, the challenge of the book of Tvarim is what happens when you're living too far away from God, and you have the problem of maybe you forget that God is the one providing for you and the one who led you into the land and gave you all of these blessings. So this is a very tough relationship for us to figure out. Uh, I want to just turn our attention to another point, and that's to the Kruvim, these cherubs. I realize cherub doesn't help explain Kruvim. It's just the English form of Kruvim. We actually met a, a, a cherub or a Kruv in the, in the Garden of Eden story. Uh, one of those with the flaming sword is preventing people from industrious folks like you and myself from finding the Garden of Eden and going in and, and enjoying its delights, according to uh, Bray Sheet. Uh, but there's also uh, the description uh, of the Ark of the Covenant, not only famous because of Indiana Jones, but as the, the centerpiece in the Holy of Holies, right, where God actually says, I'm going to speak to you from between the Kruvim. They are like the, the pinnacle connecting point between divine presence and, uh, and uh, either the Kohen Gadol or Moshe. Uh, this is this there. is where God communicates from. Right. It's not that, only that God's presence is there. His it's, that's where information right. is going to be given over. And we get a very difficult description of these beings. Uh, they're not described well. We know they have wings. There's that famous debate whether they look like angels or look like small children. But the text actually says, it's a very interesting text in chapter 25, and describing them, uh, in verse 20, we're told as follows, the, the, uh, the cherubs, the kruvim, shall have their wings spread out above, shielding the cover with their wings. Uh, they, and then it says they shall confront each other, which literally in the Hebrew is they face each other. And then it says the faces of the kruvim all turn towards the cover, which would be down. This is a cover, not like our Aron Kodesh, where we have a curtain in front. But this is like a lid on top where the Kruvim are literally described as both facing each other and looking down yeah, at the same They're perched time. on top of the cover, and right. that's, they're simultaneously and, facing each other and also facing down. So the question is, you know, what does that mean, and how do we understand that? So my own take is there's a, as, as the sages say, the Kruvim are meant to be a model of our relationship with God, or perhaps our relationship with one another. In the, in the sense that God is there in between the Kruvim, but the Kruvim are, are, are human Images that 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 are facing one another, and also the idea that they say that you know in, in, in Tractate Yoma that when our relationship with God is good, the Kruvim face each other; when it's bad, they face away. There's a lot of symbolism of relationship going on there, and this idea of they're facing each other and facing the Ark. I like that image because I feel it's sending a powerful message about relationship. What connects people? And again, I feel like there's this Western model that what connects us to each other is precisely the other, looking in the other in the eye. You look at me and I look at you as we're doing right now, and our relationship is how we look at each other. But here there's a different model. Our relationship is forged also by what we're gazing at together. We are both looking at the ark. We are both looking, ultimately, that ark is going to hold the law, the Torah. That our relationship is less about what we see in the other, but what we are both willing to look at or take on or do together, which I think is a very interesting model of a covenant relationship between people as opposed to a friendship 
or other ways that we think of relating to each other. In a sense, that that way of thinking about the Kurvim uh, explains why having a relationship with God is so important beyond simply between God and human being. Having a relationship with God becomes the basis for relationship between all people, between the, all of the relationships that, that build a human society. So it's not only about God. It's not only about grappling with this, this infinite being that's so hard to, 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 to name, much less develop a relationship with. It's also about creating a, 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 a relationship between people and a basis for relationship between people. Wow. Well, uh, that's a very powerful idea. And I think, again, it's not what we think about. We often think about the relationship with God being very vertical and our relationship with other people being very horizontal. Uh, and I think there's a message here throughout the whole thing, right? God is dwelling among us. God's not away up there, but God is present among us. And God is actually present in our relationships with one another. But as you said, all this God being present doesn't solve all the problems. It actually generates other types of problems that uh, continue on. It's a good thing there's a parasha to speak about next week because whoever is giving the parasha podcast next week can solve these problems as well. That's true. We will leave it up to them. So on that note, uh, Daniel, thank you so much uh, for your time and your Torah. Uh, Thank you all for listening. And uh, we look forward, hopefully you will look forward to hearing more parasha podcasts in the future. Thank you. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episodes of the Pardes Parsha podcast.